Well, hi there, microbiology people. This is Dr. B, and today we are going to talk about microbial growth, which corresponds to Chapter 9 of the OpenStax Microbiology book. And this is an important chapter, and we are going to talk first about some definitions regarding growth, microbial growth. We are going to focus mostly on bacterial growth. We are going to look at the faces of the bacterial our growth curve, um, the factors that affect microbial growth, and then eventually we're going to talk about ways to measure bacterial growth. So I don't know if I'm going to make this in one episode or not, but let's get started. Um, when we talk about microbial growth, we tend to think about increasing numbers, not in size. And the reason is because most microbes, especially when we think about prokaryotes, are unicellular. So cells don't usually get bigger. What happens is that they divide. So we are mostly thinking of increasing numbers, not increasing size. Now, regarding how do microbes um, divide, um, if it's a, a bacterium, it's going to be through binary fission. So prokaryotic cells don't have the <clears throat> mitosis, for example, that eukaryotic cells have binary fission, as the name says, it's a binary, so it divides in two, and fission is basically breaking in two. So it's a much simpler process. The DNA will replicate, then kind of moves to opposite sides of the cell, and then something called the septum. So division appears in the middle of the cells and eventually the two cells separate. The next definition to look at is generation time. Generation time is the time required to double the cell number. So if you think about in generation zero, you start with one cell, generation one, which means that one cell has split to two. And then generation two, each of those two cells will separate in two. So you have four cells. Um, generation three would be eight. So eventually you can have a very high number uh, after a few generations because it's an exponential growth. Now, the generation number um, is going to depend a lot of factors. Okay, so you can in general talk about faster growing and slower growing microbes. And clearly the shorter the generation time, you know, the faster that microbe grows. So we are going to see later on when we talked about different bacteria, um, you may recall mycobacteria, for example, the ones with the acid fast waxy cell, well, they in general tend to be slower growing compared to other bacteria. But also, it's going to, even for the same bacterium, it's going to depend a lot on the conditions of the environment. So, for example, if you have a bacterium growing in an environment when they have to you know, fight for resources or the nutritional resources are low, they are going to grow slower than if you put, let's say, an E. coli in a broth um, you know, by itself, then it's going to grow very, very quickly. So again, generation time is going to depend on the microbe itself. Some are slower growing than others, but also on the conditions of the culture 
and that can be as short as 20 something minutes for E. coli in you know very favorable conditions. And remember, the shorter the generation time, the uh, the faster the uh, bacterium grows. And again, you see how I'm talking mostly about bacteria because these are the easier to study and where the you know the the clearer correlation exists between culture conditions and growth. And with this, we are moving on to explore the bacterial growth curve. And what the bacterial growth curve is, uh, imagine a scenario when you inoculate a bacterial culture, let's say a bacterial growth, um, in, uh, in a medium, and then you monitor the number of cells. And we are going to see later how you monitor the number of cells, but you will be plotting uh, time on the x-axis versus the number of cells um, over time, and um, you look at how those numbers change. And remember, this is not really a scenario that we would be following all the way to the end. If you are culturing bacteria in the lab, you want your cells to be happy, so you don't wait for them to die. But it is interesting to look at the different phases, which are four major Faces, and I do recommend that you look at the diagram so you understand what that curve looks like. So we have the lag, the log, the stationary, and the death or decline phase. And let's get started one by one. So when you inoculate a bacterial culture, you will see a phase where there is no increase in numbers, and this is what we call the lag phase. And the reason for that is that bacteria will take some time to adapt to the new environment before starting to actively divide. Now, the length of that lag phase is, can change. It can be very short or it can be much longer. For example, <clears throat> if you are taking a bacterium that has been uh, grown in, let's say, triptic soy broth, and then you transfer it to a new um, tube of triptych soy broth, the lag phase is going to be very short because it's the same medium, so the bacteria don't has to adapt to, doesn't have to adapt to, you know, new media, new uh, nutritional sources, etc. If you move it from one medium to a different medium, then there may be a little bit longer lag phase because Bacteria, as we will see when we get to genetics, are very um, frugal or very strategic in what kind of enzyme they have available. So when they are in a certain medium, let's say that has glucose, they will have the enzymes to break down glucose. They won't have the enzymes ready to, let's say, metabolize lactose. So if you move them from glucose to lactose, they need to get the machinery ready to break down lactose. So the lag phase here would be a little bit longer because the bacterium needs to adapt and get the enzymes ready in order to metabolize this new medium. An even longer lag phase could happen if you are starting from endospores. You may recall that endospores are the survival structures that certain bacteria, gram-positive rods, such as bacilli and clostridia, make when the conditions are very unfavorable. 
And when the conditions change, so let's say now there is food around, then the endospores can germinate. But this is not an, a fast and quick process. There is, you know, kind of unpacking necessary for the endospore to become a vegetative cell again. So again, the lag phase is the a phase that appears flat in the in the in the curve in the growth curve because there is no increase in cell numbers and this is because the bacteria is adapting to the new environment then we have the log or exponential growth phase and it's called log because it's a logarithmic growth so <clears throat> if you plot it in a logarithmic um, scale you are going to see basically a straight line up and this is when your cells are the happiest they are actively dividing there is food so they are you know just dividing in numbers and in uh, laboratory conditions this is where you want your cells to be you know happy and dividing now the next phase is what we call the stationary phase and this phase looks flat um, on the curve and this is because now we have gotten to a phase that the nutritional uh, so the, the nutrients in the medium are exhausted plus that growth of bacteria has generated a bunch of waste products and so that waste those waste products can be toxic or can be you know change the pH of the of the medium so it's not that favorable so the growth is going to slow down and at the same time some cells start to die and in the stationary phase the number of cells made or dividing is going to equal the number of cells that die so that's why you see the the curve as flat and it's important that you note that lag phase is also flat but in the lag phase, it's flat because the cells are not growing. <clears throat> in the stationary, it's flat because cells growing and dying are equal to each other. And if we don't change the medium, if we don't do anything else, uh, we get to the death phase, which is kind of the mirror image of the log phase. So you will see a logarithmic decline in numbers and um, if the cell can make endospore, this is when they make endospores. But um, basically just cells die one after the other in a logarithmic scale. Now, um, you were measuring somehow in this growth phase how cells uh, grow and die. So let's look at the methods of quantifying bacteria and um, there are two major types of methods and one is the direct methods and the other is the indirect methods and the difference is that in the direct method you are actually going to have some kind of cell number okay and the indirect methods you are going to quantify something that is dependent on the cell numbers. It's, give, it's going to give you an idea of the cell numbers, but you are not going to have specific numbers for cells. So that's why it's in direct measure. And let's explain um, direct and indirect methods, and hopefully it's going to be clearer.
So uh, among the direct methods, there is the direct microscopic count, which is very simple and straightforward. Um, there are special slides that have these grids and they have a set volume. So if you put the cover slip on top of those slides and you apply, you fill that space with a bacterial suspension, you know exactly the volume that is in that space. And when you look under the microscope, there is going to be a grid and you will count the bacteria that are present in that grid. And there will be a formula that you can calculate that if you count this many cells in this grid, you multiply with a certain factor corresponding to the volume of that space, and then you will get a number of cells. So you will actually report so many millions of cells in one, I don't know, milliliter or so. Um, this is simple. This is very quick but also has the disadvantage that you cannot distinguish between live and dead cells. You are going to count cells, but some of those cells may be live, alive and others may be dead. Another direct method is plate counts, and you have done something like this in your lab already. So this is where you make dilution, serial dilutions of whatever suspension you are measuring and you spread them in on the plate and then you count colonies and you will be calculating backwards that according to the number of colonies that you obtain with a certain dilution and a certain volume that you inoculate that means that your original uh, cell suspension has that many cells per let's say milliliter um, I just want to add that in the lab you probably did spread plates, but there are also something called pour plates. And the difference is that in spread plates you are spreading the cells on the surface of the agar. And in the pour plates you have the agar as a fluid solution. So it's still warm, but not too warm. It's not, you know, piping hot. It's it's warm enough to be melted, but it's not hot enough to kill the bacterial cells, and then you will be mixing the uh, bacterial dilution with the agar, and then you pour them. And this is good if you want to help those cells to grow that prefer not to be exposed to uh, high concentrations of oxygen. It, it won't allow anaerobes to grow because it's not that... Um, you know, away from the air, but some bacteria that may prefer less oxygen would be able to grow under the agar. But the, um, the principle is the same. So you prepare dilutions and then you count colonies. And we report colony forming units because the assumption is that each of these colonies came from one cell but you cannot really be sure of that. So that's why instead of saying so many cells, you, you say colony forming units. Um, what are the advantages and disadvantages of this method? Well, the disadvantage that it's long, it takes longer time, it's more complicated, that's, that's obvious. You know, instead of just taking the 
suspension, putting on a slide and counting under a microscope, which is, is very quick. You have to prepare the dilutions and grow the cells and then count the cells. On the other hand, only the live cells will make colonies. So this will give you the advantage of you will know the number of the cells that are alive. And this is important, for example, in, you know, an infectious um, situation. You know, if you have a lot of cells but are dead, it's not as dangerous as having a lot of cells that are alive. Regarding the, um, the calculation and the serial dilutions, I refer you to you know, the laboratory activities you did with serial dilutions, but for once, the number of colonies counted is, um, you know, you don't want to count too few colonies because if you have only three colonies on a plate, those colonies could be there from, a, you know, from the air, a contamination or randomly. <clears throat> you don't want to count too many cells because one, it's very they're harder to count, and two, if you have hundreds of colonies on a plate, chances are that they have been, you know, touching each other and you may have hidden colonies after, uh, under other colonies. So the, um, the optimum range of colony counting is somewhere between uh, 50 and 250 or something along those lines. And... Um, you know, some people may count up to 300, but more than that is too numerous to count TNTC and less than that, less than, let's say, uh, 50 colonies will be too few to count. And the calculation is you count the cells and then you multiply by the factor, that dilution factor that you establish with the inoculation volume. So let's say if you inoculate 0.1 milliliter, that would be a factor of 10 from milliliter, you know, 0.1 and 1. So you'll be multiplying by that factor. And then whatever additional factor you did in your serial dilution, you know, 1 in 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, etc. Um, another direct method is what we call MPN, which is most probable number. And this is particularly useful for environmental samples that have very low um, <clears throat> numbers for colony counts. For example, if you take water samples, water samples, you spread them on a plate and chances are that you are going to get very few colonies. And again, that may be too... Um, too low to have a um, reliable number. So the way it works, and this is, you know, it's a system, it's already set up, so there will be five broth tubes. So you will have sets of five broth tubes, very often lactose, and you inoculate them with three different volumes of the sample. So let's say you inoculate um, a set of five with 10 milliliters, a set of five with one milliliter, and another set of five with 0.1 milliliter. You will <clears throat> look for growth due to the change in the color of the broth. Uh, in this case, if it's lactose, it's going to be a fermentation reaction, it's going to change to yellow. 
and you will get a code number of three based on those three volumes. So let's say when you inoculated 10 mils, all five tubes uh, were positive. So then you say five. In the one milliliter group, you have two. So the next number is two. And then in the 0.1, it's zero. So your number is five to zero. And there are tables, MPN numbers, that you can look up that combination five to zero is going to be uh, is going to give you a range of cell numbers that um, you know in which that sample could be. So this is a direct method because although it's not um, exact in the same, it's not going to give you one number. It's going to give you a most probable number. I don't know, it'd be 0.5 and 1 million per cells when you have this combination. It's still giving you numbers of cells. And remember, kind of similar to the plate counts, this is going to reflect living cells. So whenever you hear, you know, a beach report that this beach has been closed because the number of coliforms is exceeding a certain range of safety, this was determined probably with the most probable number, coliform is kind of a word for fecal contamination, and there are public health guidelines about what, which ranges are acceptable. So moving on to indirect methods, again, you are measuring something that is related, some kind of parameter that is related to the number of cells. It's going to depend on the number of cells, but it's not going to give you an idea, a, a number of cells. It's going to be an idea of the number of cells. And the most common one is the one called turbidity. And turbid is another way to say cloudy. So when you look at the broth, clearly if, 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 you brow, if you inoculated bacteria and your broth is very cloudy, that means that the bacteria have grown. And you can measure that turbidity with an instrument called the spectrophotometer. The spectrophotometer is a, an instrument which has a light source and it can look at different wavelengths, you can adjust the wavelength at which this light is light beam is adjusted. And for example, in the case of bacterial turbidity, often use something around like 600 um, nanometers. So how it works, the light goes through the broth, so you put the broth in this machine and then the light goes through. If the broth is clear, so you have very few cells, then the light won't be stopped by, the, uh, by anything and you are going to have a um, you know, very high, what we call transmittance, because the light is transmitted and a very low absorbance. So when you ex um, express turbidity, you can use these two parameters. So you can say the transmittance is this much percent. If it's a clear broth, the transmittance is going to be 100% and it's going to go down the cloudier the uh, cell suspension is. 
but it's more common to report either absorbance or optical density is the same thing. So that reflects the, um, how much of that light is absorbed by the cells. So if you have a clear broth and you always have to blank the machine with a clear broth and on inoculated broth, the transmitters is 100% and the absorbance or optical density is zero. And then you start adding your, your samples, you read them, and then the, uh, the number will go up the higher the uh, cell density is. Now, again, this is an indirect measure. So let's say an absorbance number of 0.5 is not going to tell you anything regarding the cell number. But for example, and going back to the bacterial growth curve, let's say that you start measuring the OD, the optical density of your culture, um, from the beginning. Let's say that you inoculate and you have 0.1 and then you read in one hour it's 0.1, you are in the lag phase. And then suddenly you see 0.2, 0.3, 0.5, etc. So you know that you are in the logarithmic phase. And then suddenly, let's say it gets to 1.2 and then it stays in 1.2 and stays in 1.2 or 1, now you know that you're in the stationary phase and then it starts going down. So now you may have 0 0.8, 0 0.7, because you know cells die, they disintegrate, so you're not going to get the same cloudiness that you have when cells are alive. So again, it's, it's not giving you a, uh, a number of the cells, but it's going to give you an idea of how the cell uh, culture is going. Also, there are techniques in the microbiology laboratory that requires that, okay, in order to use this culture, you need to have an optical density of at least 1.5. Okay, so it is simple, it's quick, it's easy. You just take the, the culture and you put it in the machine and read the number, but uh, the, the cons are one that it doesn't give you the absolute numbers and also that um, except the, the dead cells are completely disintegrated, you really don't know how many of those cells are alive except you kind of follow the process over time. Other um, indirect methods follow the um, physiological activities of the cell, for example, metabolic activity. In uh, clinical microbiology labs, very often you, you culture blood to see if there are bacteria growing in the blood. There is a very dangerous condition when we have septicemia. Septicemia means that there are bacteria in the blood and they are growing in the blood. And one way to, um, to detect that is that you take a blood culture, you put it in a special incubator that has a sensor for carbon dioxide. And if bacteria are growing in the blood, then they will produce carbon dioxide and that carbon dioxide will be detected by this sensor. So this is an indirect method. It's not 
giving you a number of cells, but it's going to alert you if there are if there is bacterial growth. And you know, growth of bacteria in the blood is a very very serious condition. So that's why it's important to um, monitor it correctly. Um, other parameters that can be measured could be changes in acidity by following the pH of a culture. Another indirect method that is mostly used in industrial applications, so there are many, you know, pharma industry processes or, you know, industry processes in general that rely on large-scale fermentation. So we are looking at large tanks full of broth with bacteria growing. You can actually filter that broth and collect the bacteria on a filter and then weight the, uh, the bacteria. So this is what we call the dry weight of the bacteria. So you have to dry the filter before weighing it. And when that can be used, let's say that you are you know, trying to grow the bacteria, you're trying different conditions. You say, okay, what's the best condition to get the highest yield? So you can you know, grow in parallel in several different um, conditions and then compare the dried weight of the different um, you know, methods and then choose which one is the best. Um, to conclude this part of the, um, of the, the growth uh, episode, I do want to say that we have been talking a lot about broth and you know, turbidity and so on. But the truth is that in natural conditions, bacteria seldom grow in broth. Um, they very often uh, attach to surfaces and form what it's called biofilms. And, um, you know, we can find them everywhere. So you can find them in your body. Think about, you know, the, the plague growing on your teeth. Or you can find them in everyday life, in pipes, in, you know, shower walls, etc. So basically what happens is that you will have some bacteria that are able to attach. They often produce some kind of slimy sticky substances and then they are able to attach to a surface and then they will attract other bacteria so you can have biofilms of multiple types of bacteria or even different microbes uh, attached together and some of them will attach to microbes not directly to the to the surface and this is very useful for this microbial community they can share nutrients uh, because they have this you know basically volume and thickness to it they are sheltered from harmful factors so biofilms are actually harder to kill compared to if you have the bacteria individually and then there is a process called quorum sensing so it's quorum like you know there is a meeting that has a quorum which is a way that bacteria communicate with each other using chemicals. So as I was saying, let's say a bacterium is able to attach to a surface and then it will secrete chemicals that will attract other uh, microbes and then they will form a biofilm. And in the final um, 
Part of this episode, this chapter, let's talk about some of the nutritional requirements for bacterial growth. And we are going to start with um, the role of oxygen in bacterial growth. Um, you may recall when we talked about photosynthesis and the special that we owe um, you know, oxygen to photosynthetic organisms, but there was early life, so the very early life on Earth, there was no oxygen available. That came later with the appearance of uh, photosynthesis, a byproduct. And when oxygen became more common in the atmosphere of the Earth, actually there was this massive extinction of all the organisms that were anaerobic and they didn't have defenses against oxygen, because the truth is that oxygenic, oxygenic species, so chemical, um, either compounds or ions that contain um, oxygen can be very damaging to biological molecules. So we kind of call them ROS, meaning reactive oxygen species. So peroxide, superoxide, hydroxide, singlet oxygen, etc. These are all um, oxidants that can damage proteins and can damage cells. So in order for cells to survive in the presence of oxygen, they need to have um, defenses against these reactive oxygen species. Otherwise, they can only exist in anaerobic conditions. So based on the relationship to oxygen, we can define five groups of bacteria. And um, it's very easy if you look at the diagram. So the, the, the diagram in the book shows how those bacteria would grow if inoculated in uh, special media such as thioglycolate, which allows the kind of the bottom of the tube to be anaerobic while the top of the tube is, is open to oxygen. So, and I'm going to start with the two opposite ends, which are the easiest to understand, the obligate aerobes and obligate anaerobes. So obligate means that they have to. So the obligate aerobes need oxygen to live. So if you look at the diagram, they are going to grow on the very top of the tube where they are exposed to oxygen. And the opposite is true for the obligate anaerobes. They die in the presence of oxygen. They have to be in anaerobic conditions to survive. So these are bacteria that are going to grow in the bottom of the tube as far as possible from oxygen exposure. Then we have the two cases that can do both aerobic and anaerobic with a slight difference. So we have facultative anaerobes and aerotolerant. Uh, anaerobes are sometimes just aerotolerant microbes. So facultative anaerobes is the, the word that very often confuses students because it has the word anaerobe in it. But when you hear this word facultative, think about optional. So what is telling you that these are optional anaerobes. They can do anaerobe but they prefer not to, they prefer oxygen. So if you look at the, uh, the growth patterns of these microbes, they, they are everywhere. They can be down in the anaerobic region of the tube, but there are more of them closer to oxygen. Okay, so facultative anaerobes can grow both in 
aerobic and anaerobic condition, but they prefer oxygen. They are more efficient um, if they have access to oxygen. In contrast, the aerotolerant ones don't use oxygen. They don't rely on oxygen for their metabolic processes. So when you look at their distribution in the tube, you are going to see that it's pretty even across the whole tube. And the last group is called microaerophiles. And uh, look at the, or let's listen to the word microaerophiles. Remember, files has to do with liking. So these are bacteria that like air, but less. That's the micro part. So if you look at the um, growth patterns, you are going to see a kind of a ring of growth beyond the surface. So they still like oxygen, they still need oxygen, but they don't like the atmospheric oxygen amounts and they prefer to be in less aerobic environments, still aerobic, but less aerobic compared to the um, atmospheric oxygen. So there are many of these bacteria of medical importance and they um, require usually special incubators to grow in the, in the lab which, with a lower uh, oxygen content. And examples of bacteria, so for example, mycobacterium tuberculosis, TB bacterium, is an obligate aerobe, which makes sense, you know, why they are in the lungs, because there's plenty of oxygen there. Another obligate aerobe is Neisseria gonorrhea, which causes gonorrhea. Um, as for obligate anaerobes, where do you find obligate anaerobes? You can find them in deep sediments. So if you have ever been by a muddy, in, you know, a muddy area or a muddy riverside and you dig deep enough in the mud, you may, you know, feel this, this smell. It's very often like a methane smell, but deep down in the mud, underwater, you may find anaerobes. They also exist at the bottom of the ocean and at the GI tract. And some of the most known anaerobes are the genus Clostridium, which is a gram-positive spore formers, and we have four major um, disease conditions that are associated to Clostridia. So we have tetanus, C. diff, um, GI, uh, gastroenteritis, or actually colitis, it's not gastro, it's colitis, uh, botulism, and gas gangrene. Clostridia are also spore formers, so even, you know, if they are in condition where they could die, they are able to form spores and survive for a long time. Um, culturing anaerobes have its own challenges, clearly, because we are in an in aerobic environment. There are special media that are able to capture um, oxygen. So for example, the thioglycolate medium I was talking about, it's a, it's not really a broth, it contains some agar. So it's kind of a semi-solid jelly broth and it contains chemicals that are able to capture oxygen. So that's why you will obtain a, um, anaerobic environment in the bottom of the, of the tube. 
but there are jars called anaerobic jars in which you place the cultures and then you will open some kind of envelope that contains a catalyst that is able to, so there will be a chemical reaction capturing the oxygen in the jar. So of course you have to close the jar um, airtight and then this jar is going to remain anaerobic for the time of the culture. And if you need larger volumes, there are also anaerobic chambers where you can keep it um, you know, without oxygen, can manipulate and can culture anaerobic bacteria. And something to remember about anaerobic bacteria is that they do not have the defenses that aerobic bacteria have in order to survive, you know, these reactive oxygen species. So a very simple way of knowing, you know, what kind of microbe it is regarding their oxygen sensitivity is if they contain catalase. Catalase is an enzyme that breaks down peroxide to water and bubbles. And, you know, if you have ever put hydrogen peroxide on a wound, you probably have seen bubbling. And this is because all our cells contain catalase. But certain bacteria, such as Clostridia, they don't have catalase. Um, there is another enzyme called superoxide dismutase, which is able to um, break down superoxide radicals or convert them to water, and that way it's going to, you know, become um, less uh, dangerous. So again, uh, catalase is one of the most commonly used reactions in the microbiology lab. It's very simple. You just drop hydrogen peroxide either on top of the culture or on a slide. And if you see bubbling, it's positive. If there's no bubbling, it's negative. So that was the relationship to oxygen. Other factors to consider in the case of uh, bacterial growth is effect of pH. So you may recall we talked uh, at some point about enzymes, for example, how enzymes could have an optimal pH depending on the enzyme wherever it was located. So bacteria are going to have enzymes, um, let's say, comfortable with a pH where they live. So, for example, we have bacteria that are acidophiles. That means that they prefer acidic environments. They are going to grow best in acidic environments. And there are a number of fermenting bacteria, such as lactobacilli, that are in that acidic uh, range. Neutrophiles tend to be in the neutral range. And then you have alkaliphiles, which would prefer the uh, more alkaline range. So again, you can, um, you know, depending on the environment that the bacterium lives, it may be adapted to neutral versus acidic or alkaline environments. And acidophiles are very important for food purposes. So I, I already mentioned lactobacilli, in general, lactic acid bacteria that gave us fermented milk products or acidophiles, but also bacteria that give us, you know, pickles, sauerkraut, pico de gallo, etc. These are also acidophiles. 
Um, temperature ranges, we have also a, a wide range of temperatures depending on where the bacteria lives. So I'm going to start with the hottest. Hyperthermophiles are bacteria that thrive in very hot environments, almost like boiling. So these are the bacteria that um, you know survive in hot springs, on thermal sea vents, etc. A little bit lower are thermophiles. So if hyperthermophiles were around like 90 degrees Celsius, 100 degrees Celsius is boiling temperature of water. Thermophiles are going to be in the 60 to 70 um, Celsius range. So it's still way warmer than body temperature. It would be very hot environments. The bacteria that have the clinical um, impact, so th those that cause diseases tend to prefer body temperature uh, as their preferred temperature. So these are called mesophiles. So their preferred temperatures is around body temperature, let's say 30 something degrees Celsius. And then cool, cooler ones are because psychrophiles. So they are able to grow at very cold temperatures, almost freezing temperatures. And many of them live in you know, the ocean or even in Arctic regions. There are bacteria that can grow in ice. So just recapping, we have hyperthermophiles, thermophiles, mesophiles, and psychrophiles. Um, another factor to consider is osmotic pressure. So when we think about osmotic pressure, we think about uh, salt or sugar content. And um, usually, so many bacteria are uh, susceptible if you have a high osmotic pressure. So if you place bacteria in a very salty or very sugary environment, that osmotic pressure is going to draw water out of the cell. And then we have something called plasmolysis. And that's one of the reasons why humans, you know, for since the dawn of, of life or, you know, dawn of civilization, they have preserved food in you know salted fish or jams jellies etc so they knew that if you salted or sugared the food it would last longer it wouldn't spoil that said there are bacteria that either like salt or require salt to survive and the name for these bacteria is halophiles h-a-l-o so halophiles can be extreme halophiles slash obligate halophiles, they need it to live and think about bacteria that live in very salty environments such as the Dead Sea. And then you have facultative halophiles. So kind of what we were talking about, facultative anaerobes, they prefer oxygen, but they have the option to live in anaerobic condition. So think about the, what we meant with facultative anaerobes. They can do, they have the option to do anaerobic. That's where facultative comes from, but they do prefer oxygen. So facultative halophiles, they have the option to survive or to resist 
high osmotic pressure, but they don't really like it that much. An example of facultative halophytes are the staphylococci that live on our skin because they are able to resist the saltiness of our skin that results from the presence of sweat. Now we looked at some of the um, you know, factors that determine bacterial growth or that you know, impacts bacterial growth. And now let's just look at growth media or culture media in general and what they contain. So culture media are, you know, it's, there are like recipe books for culture media that are going to contain the nutrients that are required to support microbial growth. They, there are recipes for all kinds of bacteria. We have some more generic media that work for a wide variety of organisms. There are some that are specifically designed for certain bacteria. Something important is that these media have to be sterile in order, you know, because you don't want to have any contaminants in the medium. And when you inoculate a microbe into a culture medium, you call that an inoculum. So inoculum is the starting microbial population that you add to the culture medium. Um, in the lab, you have seen examples of culture media, so they can be liquid, we call them broth, and they can be solid. And the solid media contain agar. Agar is a complex polysaccharide coming from seaweed. It just provides solidity to the medium, so it can be used in petri plates, in slants and deeps. And most bacteria don't eat the agar. So the agar is not part of the nutritional content of the medium. It's just a solidifying um, agent. And when you add it to the medium, first you have to melt it. So it's going to, basically you have to boil or heat up the, uh, the medium enough for the agar to be dissolved into the medium and then you wait until it cools down a bit and then you pour either the plates or you prepare your slants and deeps etc and it's going to solidify around 40 celsius degrees so 40 celsius is um i would say 100 something low 100 something fahrenheit so usually it's going to be solid at room temperature Media can be divided into chemically defined and complex, and the name kind of says what it is. In chemically defined, you know the exact chemical composition, and the complex media are going to contain complex mixtures of stuff. And by stuff, I mean it could be extracts or digest of yeast, meat, or plants. Uh, believe it or not, chemically defined media are actually much less used. Um, and the reason is because it's a little bit when you think about humans, you know, we, have, we need our sugars and fats and uh, these major nutrients, but then you need your vitamins and you need your minerals and some of them you just need a tiny amount, but without that tiny amount you are not healthy. And the same way bacteria may need some minuscule amount of some obscure compound. And preparing this 
chemically, so you have all these reagents or all these chemicals, it's just too complicated and too expensive. It's much easier to have a medium where you add something complex that already contains those micronutrients. So um, examples of complex media are kind of the, the usual, um, you know, the most common media that are used in microbiology, such as triptych soy, is a broth of agar, nutrient broth or agar, BHI, which is brain-heart infusion, LB, which is luria broth, um, potato dextrose agar, and so on. So again, there are a number of these very, very common uh, complex media. Chemically defined, it's used for very few cases. Now, how do you know if something is complex or um, chemically defined? So usually in a chemically defined medium, you are going to see uh, formulas or, you know, names of compounds, you know, ferric chloride, calcium sulfate, things like that. In a complex medium, you are going to find words such as peptone. So peptone is an extract that is rich of proteins, but it's just a complex mixture. You may find um, words such as digest or extract. So whenever you see something that it's not a chemical's name, then you know it's a, um, a complex medium. And finally, let's talk about special categories of media that have a certain purpose. So we have selective, differential, and enrichment media. So selective media are often used when you are starting from a complex population, you're looking for a specific group of microbes or a specific microbes, and you want to eliminate everything that is not belonging to that group. So, for example, you want to eliminate all the gram positives or you want to eliminate all the gram negatives, to give you an example. And what you do in the selective medium is that you put a barrier for those bacteria to grow. So, for example, there is a medium you are going to use called mannitol salt agar. Salt means that it contains a high percentage of salt. So remember the word was halophiles. Those are the bacteria that can resist high salt concentration. So that medium is going to prevent all bacteria that are not halophiles or facultative halophiles from growing because you know there is a high salt content. So for selective, again, it's there's a barrier that prevents the unwanted bacteria to grow. Differential means that um, the cells grow and they will have different appearances depending on the media. So, for example, um, one very common is blood agar. So, once we get to streptococci, you're going to learn about different types of hemolysis. So, when you inoculate streptococci and blood agar, some of them are able to break down the red blood cells completely, others are able to break down the red blood cells partially, and some are unable to break down the red blood cells, so the cells are going, the colonies are going to look different on the plate. 
Um, actually, mannitol salt, which I was just mentioning as an example of selective medium, is also differential. So many media are both selective and differential. So once you grow the cells that can resist the high salt contents, they are going to look different in color depending on their ability to ferment mannitol. So you're going to see the Staph aureus, for example, is going to grow yellow because it ferments mannitol, while other more, let's say, benign Staphylococci are going to remain pink. And um, enrichment culture is very often gets confused with the um, selective, and it sometimes kind of overlaps a little bit um, in the sense that you are encouraging the growth of something uh, compared to others. You want to give an advantage to a certain group of, of microbes. So for example, if you have a group of microbes that depends on a special substance, um, then you can provide that special substance to, to see uh, that if that bacterium will grow, so it will, the culture will be enriched. Now, when do you use that? For example, let's say that you have, you are looking for plastic degradation bacteria. That's a big thing. You're trying to find bacteria that naturally degrade plastic. So, one thing you can do is to add plastic to the medium to provide an advantage for those bacteria that are able to degrade plastic, which may be present, but they maybe are present in a very low amount. So uh, it's a little bit like, I don't know if you know, that's probiotic and prebiotic. So prebiotic is supposedly helping your good bacteria to grow in your gut, but providing the sugars that they specifically like. So enrichment culture is a little bit like that. But yeah, there is a, a bit of overlap between selective and enrichment, but the main difference in enrichment that you are looking at something that is in small amounts and you want to encourage it to grow versus repressing the growth of others. So hopefully that makes sense and I appreciate your attention. Thank you so much.